You're listening to a talk recorded live at Wildfires 2019. Find out more about Wildfires at wildfiresfestival.com or find us on social media. Good afternoon, everyone. Can you all hear me all right? Nice to see you. My name is Joshua. It is a real honor to speak to you this afternoon. I am going to chat with you till about five o'clock and um, want to take you on a journey really that I've been on over the last year plus. Um, really kind of it kicked off when I started working with Tear Fund. We make some noise for Tear Fund real quick. That golf clap is for you, Tear Fund. Uh, if, I don't know how many of you know about the work at Tear Fund, but these guys are on the ground, on the front line, really changing people's lives. They're in the thick of the mess. In, in any kind of area of injustice that you can think about, Tear Fund's doing something about it physically and tangibly. And um, I came into contact with them for the first time last year. I'm a poet. I can actually say that. I write poems. I've been paying the rent with words for a little while. It's taken some time. Every time I meet someone over the last few years and they say, what do you do? It's always an array of a few different things. But now I do say, I'm a poet. I work with words. And they kind of presume that's something that died out 100 years ago, but it's not. It's still happening. Um, so I write poems. And um, for a long time, I've been looking at different ways that I can use my words to partner with people that are on the front line, helping people's lives change and get better. I've got a deep conviction to use my words to speak about the heart of the matter. I, I have this saying, which I've kind of drummed into everything I do. We deal with the heart of a matter by healing matters of the heart. And so I'm interested in working with people that are really dealing with the crux of what people's lives are facing and Tear Fund are doing just that. So this journey, which I've, which I've titled, I Am a Temple, began about a year ago. And it's a, it's a journey that I think is really for anyone else who wants to kind of get involved with and allow it to be a part of your life. I'm going to kick off this session with a poem because that's what I do. And whenever I speak, I like to start with poetry because I feel much more comfortable with poetry than any other kind of communication. So can we turn this into a little spoken word night tonight? Is that all right? Yeah, you can click your fingers if you hear something that you like. This is a poem that I wrote that really documents my journey of just this awakening of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. I am a temple. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You heard that line before? We're going to dig into that and what that means for us. But this is my journey with it. I am a temple, the architect turned brick and mortar into blood and flesh. And the evidence is in my breath, because when I breathe, it's like a priest lifting incense into the air. I am a temple, a walking sanctuary of God's indwelling. See, when I am present, his presence permeates the present. I have both feet on the earth, but my heart's hidden in heaven. I got God's dream in my bloodstream, but worship is my weapon. See, we have moved beyond the melody. Now our worship looks like dirty hands, dusty feet, and arms embracing enemies. And our praise transcends the music. For those who worship in spirit and truth always have scars to prove it. And so I must align my actions with the words that I speak. How can I praise them with a song and waste more water in a week? Sorry, how, how can I praise it with my mouth and waste more water in a day than most drink in a week? He said the weak would be strong. Everyone would belong. Everyone is his property. That means it's everybody's problem over a billion still live in poverty. When we walk with the authority of a king who left his throne to find the broken in their story, just to say, you are not alone. There's room at the table. There's space in the home. Grace has redefined the state you thought shaped the way you'd be known. Listen to this. 
the good news is good news for parched ground and parched lips, for the forgotten and unseen, the uncrowned and unhinged. He did not hide behind his decadence. If it's heaven sent, then it walks amongst the poor. So we treat them with holy reverence. This is New Testament. God has broken every box and bumper sticker sentiment. Jesus is the evidence. The four walls are falling down, so we are the walking temple. Those that represent his temperament. And I can feel we're on the precipice, but the revolution will not be televised. You'll see it in your neighbor's lives. The transformation of society as we wake up and come alive and bridge the space and break the walls that separate the human race. Now is the time to sound the call and be the change we're praying for. Now is the time to sound the call and be that change we're praying for. I wrote that piece to document my journey, but I also used it as one of the first things we did together, myself and Tear Fund, as a means of just helping people to expand their view of what worship is. And I used the poem to open up on a tour that we did with a hugely well-known worship band. And it was an amazing experience to say, hey, tonight we're going to worship in song. But the reality of worship is infused into everything we say and do, right? So Tear Fund, I have got this campaign going on at the moment. It's an amazing campaign. In fact, it's so good, it's called a rubbish campaign. This is a rubbish campaign. And the whole campaign is built around this idea that we can worship by putting our names to a petition that raise a voice for people who are being unheard, people that are being affected by the reality of um, waste, the reality that when we just use plastic once, it's actually impacting someone far, far from where we are in a very, 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 serious way. Over 1 million people a year are being impacted by waste pollution. And so over the last few days at Big Church Day Out, and again this week here at Wildfires, we're giving people the opportunity to put their names on this petition. If you sign one of these, you pull in your details, and you give it to someone in a yellow t-shirt, your name is going to join a petition. Your voice is going to speak. I don't say on behalf of the voiceless because no one's voiceless. There's just people that aren't being listened to. There's just people whose voices are being ignored. Your voice will speak on behalf of someone being unheard to say these corporations that are creating so much waste that is killing people with its pollution need to make a change. Would you agree? It needs to change. And for us, that's a reality of, hey, that's exaltation. If care for the earth and love for our savior that, sorry, care for the earth and love for our neighbor, neighbor must be one of the most fitting exaltations we could ever offer our Savior. If he says that it's the golden rule, then I think we better do it. Amen. So let me tell you a bit about this journey with I Am a Temple. You guys will probably know the, uh, the scripture. Paul writes it in Corinthians 6, 19. He says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And then he says, you are not your own. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And I love this bit of scripture because this is poetry. If you were just to pull this out on its own, it just stands. This is an amazing statement. It's provocative. It's powerful. And when Paul wrote it, he wrote it to be provocative. He didn't write it just to be this kind of nicety, this bit of Christian literature that you can put up on your wall like a meme. It's meant to provoke something. It's meant to disturb you. And the more I got into it, the more it began to disturb me, the more it began to kind of break my box of what I believed worship was and what I believed being a follower of Jesus really meant. 
When you say of yourself, I am a temple, you're making a very, very proud, very defiant statement. I was on tour last year and uh, we stopped off in Lincoln. Anybody been to Lincoln Cathedral? Lincoln Cathedral is phenomenal. We walked around Lincoln Cathedral and there was a plaque on the floor and it said, the first brick in this cathedral was laid in the 11th century. And I looked at it and I thought, oh my goodness, this building has been standing through the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, the 14th, the 15th, the 16th, the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century. This building has been standing, hosting the presence and the exaltation of God. I'm standing in a temple. And when I realized that, this verse came in my mind. And what it did for me was I realized what Paul's saying here is I'm commissioning you to realize that your life is much bigger than the 80, 90 years that you think you have to live. In fact, your life could be that which hosts the presence and exalts the name of God for centuries beyond your life and your death. It's powerful and it's provocative. So I started digging into it even more and this is what I found out. Paul wrote this passage in about AD 54 to the Corinthians church. It was his first visit to Ephesus and he writes these words, AD 54. About 10 years later, Paul dies. Six years after that, the Romans take down the temple in Jerusalem. The temple which is standing as the epicenter of Jewish spirituality is burnt to the ground by the Romans. And this is just this hugely historic and massive moment for human history, but human spirituality. What happened in that moment was huge. So I started digging into it, started reading the history around it. And I found an excerpt from the historian Josephus, first century historian, who wrote about the fall of the temple. This is all in this journey of thinking, what does it mean to be a temple? What does it actually mean to be a temple? And I found this excerpt, and I want to read it to you. It's by, um, yeah, by Josephus, and he's talking about the fall of the temple, in, in which it was a time period that he lived in. So it's pretty powerful. He says this, the rebels shortly attacked the Romans again. So the Jews were pushing back. The rebels shortly attacked. And a clash followed between the guards of the sanctuary of the temple and the Roman troops who were putting out the fire inside the inner core. The latter rooted the Jews and followed them in hot pursuit up to the temple. Then, Josephus writes, one of the soldiers without awaiting any orders and with no dread of such a momentous a deed, but urged on by some supernatural force, he says, snatched a blazing piece of wood and climbing onto another soldier's back, hurled the, hurled the flaming brand through a low window that gave access on the north side to the rooms that surrounded the inner sanctuary. And as the flame shot up, the Jews let out a shout of dismay that matched the tragedy. They flocked to the rescue with no thought of sparing their lives or husbanding their strength for the sacred structure that they had constantly guarded with such devotion was vanishing before their very eyes. So over a decade before this happened, Paul had written, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit you are not your own. And to that point, the understanding of temple was the sanctuary of God's presence, the epicenter of spiritual expression. And then we get to this point in history where it's burnt to the ground. And it's burnt by the Romans. It's burnt by the empire. I was just in John Mark Comer's session and he said, he quoted Winston Churchill who said, in the future, the empire will be of the mind, not of geography. 
the empire will be of the mind. And it's interesting, the empire tore down the temple. So when Paul says to the church, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, I believe, it's my conviction, that what God is saying to us today is, I'm using you to rebuild what empires have torn down. And if you look at the history of empires, empires just take down cultures, reform them to their own accord. They make it life even more grotesque and difficult for the ostracized, the exiled, and the downtrodden. They oppose the flourishing of life in freedom. And I think in one way or another, we all know what that means to us. The empire represents that which opposes revitalization, revival, and restoration. The empire in our own lives individually could be something of jealousy, control, fear, or shame. So Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Now you are a temple. I am using you to rebuild what empires have torn down. Now you are the resistance. Now you are the revolution. Now you are what I'm using, says God, to reveal to the rest of society that the story isn't over for those who really should believe it is. Is this making sense? This is provocative. This changes everything. This doesn't become a kind of simple, crass, cliche idea of, you know, I'm something pretty like a nice little church. No, no, I'm, I represent resistance everywhere I go. And more so, my life lived out like a temple has the potential to be something that hosts this story, this narrative, God's presence way beyond my lifetime. And I think deep down within us, we all want that. We all want to lean into a story and into a narrative that says, my life counts for something more than what I'm able to do and say in the next 60, 70 years. Would you agree? Some of you. So when Paul says this, I feel conviction and it provokes me. It says in John, perfect love casts out fear. I've heard that a million times. But when I read this, it just started to find new life for me. Perfect love casts out fear. God is love, amen. The Holy Spirit lives in me. So when I feel conviction, after I read this, I realized when I feel conviction, when I feel this sense of I'm engaging in something that doesn't fully represent who I am, of which I do on a daily basis at times, when I feel conviction that I'm living less than the standard I know I'm called to, when I feel that conviction, it's because there's an eviction that's about to take place. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. Whatever you think about yourself, however you've defined yourself, you are where God has decided to live. So when you feel conviction, you're feeling the Holy Spirit knocking on the door of your heart with an eviction notice saying, there's some squatters in my house. Someone's living where I call home and it's time for them to leave. Does this make sense? And that has changed everything for me. Conviction used to be something I would run from or try to rationalize my way out of. Now it's the, it's the reminder that I am not my own. I am where the divine has decided to call home. And when we start living like that and we start appreciating the truth of that, our humanity becomes a lot more exciting. And the good news becomes something that we feel more enticed and invigorated to tell people. It took me a long time. I'm just going to be very honest. I'm 29 years old. It's taken me a long time to really appreciate why it's good news. I used to feel like I, I, it's called good news, but every time I get down at talking about it, I get confused. And I get caught in these kind of loopholes and I end up 
turns into confusing news rather than good news. Just being very honest, you might all be phenomenal evangelists that have never struggled with this. But I know for me that's the case. What I'm realizing when Paul says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit is this. God wants to call humanity home in two cents. He wants to call humans back unto himself. And he wants to call the very presence of a human his home. The good news is saying to people, everything, everything you ever wished was true from the soulful level, not the superficial level, but a soulful level, everything you ever wished was true is. You matter and you're worth something way more than you could quantify by your own definition. You want to belong and you want to be loved. This is true. How do I know God created you that he could dwell within you? You are where the divine wants to dwell. That's the definition of what it means to be human. We are becoming human more we, to the point that we realize that that's the definition. God wants to live within us. That is something to offer someone. Why am I worth something? Why should I think I have value? Well, we represent what we value more than ever in the places that we live. You can see when you walk into someone's home what their values are, just by the decorations they have on their walls, by the cleanliness of it, by the hygiene of the place, by the aesthetics. You can see the person in the place that they live. God says, you're my house. You're where I choose to dwell. You're my home. So when Paul's writing to the Corinthians church, it's funny, he says, to the saints in Corinth, Men, stop sleeping with your father's wife. <laughs> Does anyone else find that funny? To the saints. <laughs> He's defining them by something far more than their actions. To the saints in Corinth, you're better than this. Why should I believe that? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You transcend the definitions you've given yourself. You transcend what other people say about you. Your life counts for way more. You are what God is using to rebuild what the empire has torn down time and time again. You are walking resistance literature. Christianity doesn't fit on nice little cards with little statements. It's a manifesto for dead people coming back to life. It's a lot more gritty. It's a lot more dirty. It's a lot more rugged around the edges. It's far less sanitized than we like to think. I always think if Jesus was to write a book today, it wouldn't be on the Amazon best-selling list and kind of self-help guruism. It'd be in a dusty basement somewhere. You blow off the dust and you see a title on the front page that says something to the effect of how to bring dead people back to life, how to start a revolution. Paul equipped the early church with a sense of the story isn't over. Even though the empire very physically and practically appears to be just ruling and reigning over everything, the story isn't over. What's the proof? I'm here. I'm still speaking. I'm still telling this redemptive story. I'm still declaring that it's not over. And I would say in 2019, we probably need that more now than ever. Amen. Anybody read the news in the last week, two days, day? That's a confused world out there. And what they're not looking for is better politics. They're looking for dead people who've come back to life that can show them how to do it as well. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. And so the way that this has really grasped my life, probably in the last year more than ever, is this. When I was in Lincoln Cathedral, I realized this feels like a sacred space. And it's no different to other buildings, it's brick and mortar, but it feels sacred. Why? Because it's been used for one purpose and one purpose alone for 
a lot of time to worship God. It's sacred, it's special. And I just felt like as I was walking through it in the quietness and in the darkness and in the stillness of the cathedral, I felt like, bless you. Um, I felt like I'm on holy ground. And I know that sounds a little mystical to say, but I did. I felt, I feel like I'm standing on holy ground right now. This ground matters. And I just spent about an hour in there before sound check, just praying and just being with God and just enjoying the space. Came back to the scripture, Corinthians 9, uh, 6.19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If I'm a temple, that means the ground that I'm standing on is holy. That means wherever I go, the moment actually counts for something and it matters. When I was in a cathedral, everything became slower, sl slower. <laughs> I make up words when I speak. Became slower, became quieter, became easier to hear the depths of my heart. It became easier just to pray. It wasn't so busy. My phone was off. This is a holy moment. Lean in and engage. And some of you might be going to a story in Exodus right now as I'm using this terminology of Moses, right? For it was the story of Moses walking through the desert and it says there was a bush engulfed with, with, with fire. It was burning. It was burning away. And the bush spoke to Moses. Everyone knows that story, right? The rabbis, the Jewish rabbis say the miracle wasn't the bush, that bush burning. The miracle was that Moses was walking slowly enough to notice it. Because the bushes would have been burning. It was desert. It was hot. And they were just getting dried up and put, put, set on fire. Moses was walking slowly enough that he took notice of the burning bush. And when he took notice of the burning bush, what happened? It began to speak to him. There's a poet and she says, the whole earth is filled with heaven, drenched with glory. Every common bush ablaze with fire. But only those walking slowly enough take off their shoes. This is holy ground. And so the application of I am a temple for me has been this. All right, my life could live a lot longer than my years. I could stand for something like these building stands in cities. I could stand for something that echoes on beyond my lifetime. Also, my life looks like a resistance, a pushback to the empire, to the schemes of darkness, to the injustices of this world. My life pushes back just by being in that room. I'm commissioning that. The second thing about it, or the third thing about it is this. I need to walk slower in my life. I cannot change anything if I'm not there. I can't change a room if I'm not in the room. I'm a very distracted person. Very distracted person. It's, it's not easy for me to be fully present, but it's something that I'm learning to practice more and more because I realize I can't change anything or be impactful in any way if I'm not where I am. And this story of Moses has been very, very impactful because Moses is walking and for some reason, in the mundane of his life of being a shepherd, he decides to walk slow enough and he hears the bush. And the bush speaks to him. And we all know the story. So I'm not going to spend too much time on it. But the bush says to him, Moses, you've got a call on your life. You're an abolitionist. I want you to go and set a nation free. There's people in slavery that need to get out of their change. And I'm sending you to do it. And Moses says, who am I to do it? Who am I? And the bush says, I am. And it's this very, very significant moment. Everybody say significant. It's a significant moment where Moses is confronted with the reality of who he is. I made a decision about a year ago. I got a year left in my 20s. I'm squeezing them out before I hit the 3-0. And I thought, you know what? I don't want to scroll through my 20s anymore. And Moses was walking slowly enough that he didn't scroll past the most significant moment of his life. 
Significance got his attention. The bush spoke to him and said, I'm going to confront you with the reality of who you are. You're bigger than you think you are. You are not your own. I'm calling you a set a nation free, right? And he did. And it ends up being the most, one of the most spectacular events of human history. The whole nation is set free from the bonds of slavery, set free, set free from Egypt. So powerful. And so I'm studying this bit of scripture. I'm looking at this story and I'm thinking, well, we all have this desire in some way, tell me if I'm wrong, but a desire in some way to impact the world in some way. Am I right? In some way, it doesn't have to be this way that makes trending on Twitter or it doesn't have to be something that people talk about in coffee shops, but in some way we want to impact the world. So I'm looking at Moses's life. He impacted the world with something incredibly spectacular, but it began with this moment that was very significant. And so it got me thinking, maybe the problem is I'm not taking each moment as being significant and therefore I'm relinquishing my right to something spectacular. Why should I have a spectacular life if I'm not involving myself in the significant moments? The problem is most of the significant moments happen in the mundane moments, <laughs> tending for sheep. He was out there shepherding for years and in one day everything changed. And what if it's the case with us? What if the divine, Jesus, Colossians says, in whom all things are held together. If Jesus is in all things, then he can speak to us at all times. What if that's what we need to wake up to today more than anything? That he wants to get our attention and speak to us in significant ways that will distract us from just trying to live a spectacular life. I believe that's what he's wanting to do right now and in the church more than ever, in me more than ever, as a millennial more than ever, Josh, Slow down, it doesn't have to be spectacular. I wanna to speak to you because this moment is significant. And if you don't value this moment as being significant, then you can't expect something spectacular to happen as a result. It's just making sense. If your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, then the ground you're standing on is holy. It's a sacred moment every single second of every single minute of every single hour, every single day of every single week of every single year of every single decade of your life. It matters, it's significant. And so I started looking through history at moments of people who I thought they had a similar life like Moses. They did something absolutely spectacular. Maybe there was a moment of significance. Maybe there was a burning bush. And so I started doing a bit of research. Someone shout the answer to this out to me because uh, we need some connection. A modern day Moses who comes to mind first in the last couple hundred years a man who led an exodus. Kanye West is the right answer. Let me see if there's anybody else. Mandela, anybody else? Martin Luther King, anybody else? Gandhi, Gandhi. anybody else? This is so, so good. I'm glad we started with Kanye as well. Wilberforce, thanks dad. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, they were all the right answer, especially Ye. But Wilberforce got my attention. Wilberforce led an, ab an abolition. He led people out of slavery like Moses did. And I always heard about the, 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 the exile of the slaves. I always heard about the, the bill of abolition, but I never knew if there was a moment of significance. And I was going on this journey last year and I was thinking, I really hope there is, because that will really compound what I'm trying to build my life around. I hope I can find it. And so can I just take you on a little story about Wilberforce that I discovered that I think is pretty cool and I think should provoke us to realize that every moment matters. Are you with me on that? All right. 
Let me see how much time we've got left. I've been waffling on. All right, we've got, we got enough time. Yes, all right. So some of you guys might know this. I learned all, all this for the first time last year. William Wilberforce um, was orphaned, and uh, he, he grew up living with his uncle, who was a Christian, and uh, he came from a lot of wealth. He was a, from a very, very good stock, so to speak. Might have had a house a bit like this. And um, anyway, Wilberforce was a very, very intelligent man. He was a very socially inept man. He was just, he was a good guy to be around. He studied politics at Cambridge. He became a socialite. People loved being around him. It was said of him, he stood for two things, politics and partying. He lived a good life. He had a deep wound and a deep pain from early grief, but he, he was a good man. But he didn't really, at this point, stand for much more than just being involved in kind of the daily runnings of parliament. And, and around early 20s, he decided to go on tour around Europe for no other reason than he could. Got, got on a boat and just toured Europe, which is pretty cool. But on that tour of Europe, something happened. Because when he came back, he was a very different man. He had this deep conviction in his heart. He effectively got off the boat and said, it is not okay that one man could own another man. He met Jesus in a powerful way. And it didn't just turn into a belief. It turned into a following of a, of a man, the man Jesus, that looked like something every single day. And for him, it was, I want to end a culture that says a human being can be owned by another human being. And so he started campaigning for the abolition of slavery. He stood up in parliament and gave an incredible speech, a declaration of why this should change, why it wasn't right for one man to own another man. And he put the bill across. And the first time he put the, put the bill across, I think it was 1780 around that time, it was, it was beaten. 163 votes to about 100, no, 163 votes to 88 votes. It was beaten fairly heavily. But he came back the next year and put the bill across again. This time, they said what we might do is a gradual abolition. And Wilberforce said, no, that's not good enough because what you're doing is basically, <laughs> we might have experienced it recently, <laughs> what you're doing is putting something in motion that's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not up for it. I'm pulling this out. I'm coming back. And so he went back the next year and he was turned down again. But 50 years later from when he first stood up and did his speech, he was on his deathbed and he was told, William, the bill is going to go through this time. And a month after he died, the abolition of slavery bill went through. From that point, 800 thousand people were freed from slavery. The first university in America that was predominantly African-American is called William Wilberforce University. The first colony in Canada that was helping slaves from America find uh, peace and safety is called the Wilberforce Colony. He didn't live to see that happen, but he lived to make it happen. That's powerful, isn't it? But I'm looking at it, I'm saying this is all so spectacular. What happened on that boat? Because there was obviously some kind of burning bush that happened on that boat. So I'm digging in, I'm digging in. And I found out on this boat, he reads a book. And it's called The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul by this man I've never heard of called Philip D. Dudridge. And he read this book and it, it just grabbed him. It brought conviction to him. And he gave his life to Jesus. And he said, I want to stand for something. It's amazing. Philip D. Dudridge never heard of this guy. 
So I start researching Philip D. Dodridge, and there's not a whole lot about him, nothing like there is about William Wilberforce. This is what I found out about him. Philip D. Dodridge was a boy that was born to a very poor family, and he was expected actually to be miscarried. He wasn't expected to be born. Throughout the pregnancy, there was a lot of difficulties. When he was born, within a few, few years, he was orphaned. He went into care. At 16 years old, he decided to give his life to Jesus. He was then set in to this tiny, I found this one passage that said, he was set into a very obscure church in a rural town. That's where he started preaching the gospel. He was actually put over the youth ministry. And uh, so he started just engaging his life in the gospel and started preaching. He had nine children, only four of them lived to adulthood. At 42 years old, he wrote this book, Life and Progress of Religion. And at 49 years old, seven years later, he died. Way before Wilberforce ever read the book. And I was like, Philip Dodridge was the burning bush. This man, I want to read this little quote to you because I think it's really beautiful. I found it in... Uh, in an article about Dudridge, and it said this of him. It says, let me find this real quick. Oh, don't say I deleted it. It says this, he was not handsome in person. He was thin, he was slender in stature. He was just above the middle size with a stoop in his shoulders. But when he engaged in conversation or when he was employed at the pulpit, there was something remarkable about his countenance and about his manner, and it commanded general attention. There isn't a lot about Philip D. Dodridge, but we do know that he worked for a church in a very obscure place. And we do know he wrote a book that he didn't see end up on the New York Times bestseller list or trending on Amazon. He just wrote it and he put it out. And years later, this man, William Wilberforce, read the book and it changed his whole life. And as a result, it changed the life of millions and millions and millions of others. And when I read that, I wrote in this journal I have, I said, what if he didn't write that book? Who knows? But it's a, it's a valid question. What if he didn't write that book? It took um, Philip Dudridge the conviction to say, this moment matters. And there's something about me and what I'm carrying that could live beyond me to write this book. The rise and progress of religion in the soul. And that question, what if he didn't write that book, translates to a whole bunch of questions for me. Just what if you don't? What if you don't? What if you don't? And let me tell you this, I'm not approaching this from a place of panic or a, pla or a place of hurry. I'm approaching it from a place of purpose. I'm approaching it from a place of maybe the definition I have of myself and of my life just isn't good enough. Maybe my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and I am not my own. Maybe I could do something in the years that I have left, if it's all infused with purpose, that it could live beyond me. And there's someone in generations to come that could be impacted and change the world like Wilberforce did. Maybe, maybe. But I know the only way we can start living like that is if we believe that this moment right here and right now on a Monday afternoon in a beautiful garden under this lovely tent is holy. 
And if we ever forget it, then perhaps we need to hear the ringing of those ancient words in our ear. Did you not know? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. Did you not know? It's perfect because it wakes you up. It's a reminder when you start waking up in the morning and feeling like it's just another day. Or you're meeting that person and it's just another person, another coffee. It's just another meeting. What if it's not? What if your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And what if this moment matters? And what if even in the mundane of it all, there's a bush that's on fire and it's speaking right now? And what if like Philip Dudridge, and this is where it gets really mad. What if you're the bush that's ablaze and God is wanting to speak through you as mundane as you might seem and feel to yourself to someone else? What if? I did, did a philosophy degree, and I just want to tell you about my philosophy degree in closing because I shouldn't have done a philosophy degree. I really am not intelligent enough to have done it, and there's a reason why I did do it. And for me, it's my significant moment. It's my burning bush. Can I tell you about it? I, um, my parents are at the back. Shout out to my mom and dad. And um, I spent the first few years of my life living in Pakistan where my parents were missionaries. And... Um, I think from a young age, I've just had a desire and an interest in engaging with people that think a little different. My parents did very well put us in front of people that didn't always think like we did or believe what we do. So I had a, I had a tenacity for it, a, a hunger for it. And anyway, I went through school. I did not do very well at school. I put my mom and dad through a lot of stress probably, suspensions and exclusions and just not enjoying school. I got diagnosed with dyslexia, dyspraxia and dyscalculus. That's the triple threat for any teacher. And um, didn't leave with very good grades. Anyway, fast forward a few years, I get this desire to study philosophy because I want to keep learning about why people think the way they do, why people come to the conclusions of existence in the way that they do. And so I went to this university and I went on their website, it was in Bath, and I said, what do I need to do to study philosophy? And it said, you need at least a B, A level to study philosophy. This is including any mature students that want to apply because if you don't have this, at least this understanding of philosophy, this is going to be an absolute brain warp for the next three years. You've got to have some base level of understanding. Not only did I not have a B in philosophy, I didn't do philosophy and I didn't even do A levels. So I didn't really have much chance getting in. Anyway, I talked to God about it. And I felt this sense and this conviction of, you should study philosophy. So I hit apply and I put my application in, knowing that I was absolutely unqualified to do it. Everybody say unqualified. All right, now this is, this is the burning bush moment. Everybody say mundane. My washing machine broke one day. And so I needed to wash my clothes. And so I went down to the local laundrette. And I walk into the laundrette and there's probably about 20 washing machines. And I just, there's no one else in there, it's just me and my wife. And I go and I start trying to wash machines. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. I put the next one in, coin just falls out. It doesn't work. I get to the last one, the last washing machine, put my clothes in, boom, and it starts working. So I sit down. And within a few minutes, and this sounds like a joke, but it's not, a Buddhist monk walks in and he's wearing orange garments, totally orange robes, and he's got a bag full of orange clothes, including orange tighty oranges. And he walks in and he starts trying the washing machines. So I said, mate, they don't work. None of them work. It's just that one that works. So you can either come back in two hours or sit with me while I go through the whole cycle. And he said, I'll sit down. He's a lovely man from Sri Lanka and he sits down. So I open up the conversation. You're obviously Buddhist. He says, yes, I am. Well done. And um, we start talking about Buddhism. Buddhism's fascinating. It's awesome. 
He asked me about if I have a faith. I said, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. We start talking about Jesus. I tell him I grew up in Pakistan. We start talking about Islam. Then we get on to existential philosophy. And we start talking about all these different ideas. It's amazing. And at the end of the conversation, he says, it's interesting to meet someone your age, age interested in philosophy. Have you ever thought about studying it? I said, yeah, I have. But I'm ridiculously unqualified to do it. He said, where did you apply? I said, I applied at Bath. He said, that's funny. I'm the head of philosophy at Bath. <laughs> and the next week, or a couple weeks after, I got a call from UCAS and they said, you've been offered an unconditional offer to study philosophy at Bath. But let me, take, let, me, let me keep going, let me keep going. The reason that's my burning bush moment is this. Moses said to the bush, I can't do this. The significant moment broke through the mundane and invited him, in, invited him into something spectacular. But he denied the opportunity initially because he said, I can't do it. I'm not able to do this. And that's really often the reason that we don't walk into the things that we're invited into doing. But perfect love casts out fear. Amen. Perfect love casts out fear. And Paul says in Romans, there really is no condition to this love. What can separate us from it? Can demons, can death, can the present, can the future? No, nothing can separate you from the love. There's no conditions to this love. And so what I realized in that moment is I was unqualified, but God's love is unconditional. There was conditions that rendered me unqualified, but his love covers the conditions. And for Moses, does that make sense? Now that sounded like some warped riddle, but... It, we're unqualified, but God's love is unconditional. You're only unqualified because of conditions, but the love's unconditional. The unconditional love covers the conditions that rendered you unqualified. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. There's things within me that seem to disqualify me or render me unqualified for leaving this impact and walking into the future. God says, my love is without condition and it casts out fear. So this moment isn't just significant. I haven't just broken through the mundane. It's significant and it's to invite you into something so spectacular you couldn't have dreamt it up for yourself. And I don't believe that ends with people on stages or on TVs. I believe it, it ends up with people living like every single moment matters. Amen. I am a temple. As Bilbo Baggins once said, I think that's all I know about that. <laughs> I would... um. Appreciate that. Thank you. It's five to five, so I'm thinking that we spend just the last bit of our time together in prayer. Um, why do we stand together? Because you've been sitting down for ages, just hearing this bearded dude waffle. And um, let's just pray. I, I, what I want to do is I just want to I want to release uh, these words over you. The, the, the scriptures say that life and death is in the tongue. And that the word of God never comes back void. And so I want to just pray over you all that for those of you that want to receive it. I want to pray a commissioning that from this point, we'll look at the most mundane as an opportunity for the spectacular to be introduced into our lives. That we would live like every moment matters. That we would live like what we could do in this moment could impact generations to come. Amen. Well, Father, I thank you that you're here because I thank you that you've never left. And Lord, I just pray over every single person in this tent who wants to receive it, an awakening to the fact 
that you are always at work and you're always inviting us into it. Lord, I pray that you would reform our vision and reform even our prayers, Lord, that we would stop seeking you as being someone over there and start waking up to the reality of you being here right now. Lord, forgive us as a generation, Lord, for where we have dismissed the burning bushes, for where we have idolized spectacular moments and walked past significant moments. Lord, we're sorry for where we've failed to see you where you wanted to be found. And in this moment, God, we commit to remember those ancient words where you say of us, we are not our own definition. We are not our own decision. We are ultimately who you say we are. And you say that we are your house. And so I pray over every single person in this room, an awakening to the reality that you are where God has chosen to live. However you viewed yourself, however you've defined your body and your soul and your emotions, today I dare you to believe that God says, you are beautiful enough, you are worthy enough, you are decadent enough, you are safe enough, you are pure enough for the divine to say, this is where I want to dwell. Lord, I pray a commissioning over all of us that we would be as Philip Dudridge was, that we would take responsibility of the gifts and the tools that you've put into our hands, that we would apply them in the most basic ways sometimes with a conviction that this moment matters. Lord, I thank you for the generations that will be impacted by the temple standing in this room. We say yes and we say amen in Jesus' name. Before we close, just to stay as you are, I'm just going to read out a a prayer that I always like to close with. This, this is a prayer that, that is credited to St. Francis, but um, probably more one of his followers. And it's a prayer that I just think is so defining of everything that really I want to share with you guys today. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers and half-truths and superficial relationships so that we may live deep within our hearts. And may God bless us with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that we may work for justice and freedom and peace. And may God bless us with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war so that we may reach out our hands to comfort them and turn their pain to joy. And may God bless us with enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in this world, that we can do what others claim cannot be done, that we can bring justice and kindness to children and to the poor in Jesus' name. Amen. And you, you can begin by signing one of these petitions and giving it to a tier fund member and start changing the world that way. Amen.